Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Dorian Linsky. On this week's podcast, the Labour left grief cycle. With the Tories having their own family row, Labour's decided to go one better. But what do the left actually want? Is it power or just wreaking revenge on the dastardly centrists? Plus the COVID inquiry, with yet another vaccine on the way, and Boris Johnson insistent that lockdown two will end next week, is it time to find out where Britain went wrong on coronavirus? UCL's Christina Pegel joins us for an unofficial bunker COVID inquisition. Also, with online games offering vital spaces for COVID-secure socialising, is it time to rethink our bedroom loner stereotypes about gaming? And what would a minister for men look like? Is the idea just, what about the men? Trolling, or could it be genuinely useful? All this and more in today's one. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. We have two exciting bits of news for you this week. Firstly, we're reopening our annual Christmas market for all your gift needs at podmarket.co.uk. No need to don a hazmat suit and head into town for your shopping. We've got mugs and t-shirts in The Bunker and our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now? and even classic merch from Dear Departed Romaniacs. It's open for a limited time only. We're closing on Sunday 6th of December to ensure you get your stuff in time. So head over to podmarket.co.uk now and start reflating the economy with your discretionary spending. Secondly, we're doing another live Zoom exclusively for Patreon backers of The Bunker and or Oh God, What Now? It's on Thursday, 17th of December at 8pm. Patreon backers will get their invitation soon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up and see the panel in full Christmassy mood. Now let's meet today's panel. Uh, first, hello to the editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello, hello. So President Trump continues to deny that he's lost and to thwart the transition. Obviously, there's lots of entertainment value here from Rudy Giuliani's makeup <laughs> to Sidney Powell's Kraken conspiracy theories. Um, is an attempted legislative coup any less frightening because it's so inept? You know, at the beginning, like we definitely went into sort of a comedy subplot, right? Because there was all those months of build up to him obviously going to do this. And then when it happened, it was that the kind of typified by that Rudy Giuliani in between a sex shop and a crematorium, which sounds like a great song. Um, and you just sort of thought, well, this is fine now. This is just funny. This is just nonsense. And, and partly that was because the system held up, right? Like journalism, especially, and local officials held up and kept their end of the bargain, didn't let him shit with it. What's concerning me now and what's making it a bit more scary is that the Republican Party really isn't. Like, I mean, apart from a few honourable exceptions, like Mitt Romney, they're quite silent on this. And so that won't help Trump, you know, manage to execute his coup. But what it kind of raises is this prospect that over the next four years, the Republican Party basically giving up on the idea of accepting election results. And that is really quite corrosive and actually quite troubling. From now on, you can explain to people that the Democrats are called the Democrats because they're the ones that believe in democracy. <laughs> It does make it easier to explain to children, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah. That yeah. yeah. Closer to home, Boris Johnson has announced £16 billion of extra spending for defence, including space stuff. Given that free school meals are apparently too expensive, uh, does this bonanza make sense practically or optically? I'm going to be a bit centrist dad about this because I, I don't really have a, a lot of problem with defence spending um, on a couple of bases. And the first one is I, I do think, you know, you want to have a country that can defend itself. You also want to have a country that can interfere where there are people that we can help overseas. And I have the kind of rather unpopular position that the stuff that we've seen in Syria in recent years is partly a, a result of us failing to interfere when someone is massacring their people. And that it's no bad thing when Britain has a strong military. It's also military spending is quite useful. I was talking about this with Andrew in the Bunker Daily with the, uh, on Monday morning. Of Actually, it's quite good 
um, Keynesian stimulus. It's, it's just a good fiscal stimulus. It's the, it's the kind as well that you can get the right on board with. So you keep on pumping money into the economy in a way that they don't notice. Yeah. So it's, and, and has proved useful in that way. I mean, for instance, it proved useful to the economy when Reagan was trying to otherwise mutilate it, uh, in the 1970s. I beg pardon, in the 1980s. So it does have advantages in that sense. The, the, so the trouble isn't really with the military spending. The trouble is with the free school meals, right? It's not, we didn't do free school meals, therefore we shouldn't do military spending. It's, we should do military spending and we should also provide free school meals. So I, I, I don't have an issue with the spending. And I actually think I wish the debate was flipped around the other way. Right. I'm going to warn you that now you're going to have people on Twitter accusing you, asking you who you want to nuke next. I know, no, it's true. It's true. And that will simply make it another day in my God awful life. <laughs> also, hang out the bunting for the long awaited return of comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello. Hi, Ahir. Hello. What have you been up to in your long bunkerless months? Uh, in my bunkerless months, uh, I had a brief sojourn inexplicably appearing in the new Jurassic World film and working <laughs> for the now immolated app Quibi, uh, <laughs> which were among the more bizarre things that have happened to me in 2020 and considering <laughs> what 2020 has brought for all of us that's saying something so, so did you actually so you actually went and did some some acting with real people you didn't have to just sort of do it via zoom the Jurassic no like, so, I mean sometimes I had to pretend that I could see dinosaurs but other than that there were there were full-on humans there <laughs> amazing <I'm> fucked up <laughs> <laughs> Um, so last Thursday, the investigation into Pretty Patel's conduct found she'd breached the ministerial code, but Boris Johnson defended her, saying that her behaviour was unintentional. Um, how do you unintentionally bully someone? Have you, for example, ever accidentally thrown a folder in someone's face and told them to fuck off? <laughs> uh, well, look, given that uh, my historical relationship with the Home Office, much like uh, that of many first and second generation immigrants, in my experience... It revolved around the, in my view, extraordinarily immoral deportation of my grandmother when I was five years old in what was probably the most traumatic experience of my entire childhood. And so I have, on many occasions, wanted to yell the words, fuck off, into the face of a Home Office employee. <laughs> before this, I wasn't aware that you could go too far with it, but apparently you really can. You can There's a level of fuck off that you shouldn't do. <laughs> Johnson instructed MPs to, quote, form a square around the Pritster. Uh, I've never heard of the Pritster before. Mm -hmm. um, some of her defenders suddenly decided she was being discriminated against because of her background. Uh, now that Tory MPs have suddenly acknowledged the existence of race, class and gender, will they apply their discoveries to anybody else or is it just Pretty Patel? I think that uh, in, in the eyes of particularly certain backbench conservative MPs, you're allowed to be a thing as long as you also deport that thing. So basically, <laughs> like, what, like one deport equals one respect. <laughs> the best defence of her that I saw was somebody going that because she was quite short, that men should have stood up for her. Uh, one thing which is suggesting that the perhaps men should have physically overpowered her. And two, that through, throughout history, short people have never been bullies. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, as, as the son of a five foot tall Indian woman, uh, I can assure you that uh, they are extremely formidable, despite uh, perhaps not possessing <laughs> the greatest of height. Uh, and thank God that Elka Shah has decided to use her powers for good. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've you've never you never tried to prove your manhood by physically overpowering your mother, then. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> We're delighted to be joined today by Christina Pagel. Christina is director of the UCL Clinical Operational Research Unit, where they apply operational research and mathematics to problems in healthcare. She's also an honorary researcher at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Hello, Christina. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. <laughs> So, um, we're all medical. Can I just say, uh, very briefly, all of the things that Christina is are better than all of the things any of us are. (laughs) But I still think that Dorian's first question should be, have you ever tried to physically overpower your mother? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have not, but then she might bite. It would be hard. (laughs) Can you explain to to medical newbies like us, um, what have you, what's your sort of job consisted of during the pandemic? What's been, what's been sort of taking up your days? And when, so all of my research is kind of health stuff and it all came to a crashing halt in March and we just tried to kind of help, you know, and I think there was a lot of academics and private sector and everyone just trying to help in March. And I'm not sure how much use that actually was looking back. It just felt like an incredibly stressful time. In May, I um, got invited to join Indie Sage. And then kind of since then, most of my COVID work has kind of become Indie Sage. And I've ended up kind of being on telly and giving public health advice. And as a mathematician, it just feels really weird. And my mom's like, why are they talking to you? Why is anyone listening to you? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) But that's kind of ended up what I'm doing and my other projects are still going on in kind of other areas that are non-COVID, but I've just become kind of a big COVID data geek, basically. What do you make of the news about the Oxford vaccine? I mean, how does it compare to the the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines? And do you think that they're just going to just keep on coming? It's just going to be like a a vaccine a week. (laughs) Each one better than the, the one before. There was something like, you know, 10 vaccines in phase three trials, which is the final set of trials that you do to look at efficacy. Um, I mean, the Oxford vaccine, I haven't really looked that much into it. I mean, it said 70% and then later on, somehow it's become 90% now. I think it's through a second dose or something. But there's no doubt, like like the vaccine news is really good. And I mean, obviously, yeah, there still have to be safety checks and everything. But if you'd said six months ago, we're going to have a vaccine, two vaccines or three vaccines that are over 90% effective we'd have jumped for joy. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it, it gives us hope that this can be over one day. According to YouGov, 63% of voters think that Labour is divided and only 8% think it's united. The numbers are actually similar for the Tories, but in Labour's case, the wedge issue is Keir Starmer's decision to continue suspending the whip from Jeremy Corbyn after the NEC reinstated his membership. That decision is popular with the public, but Corbyn supporters are convinced that Starmer is waging war on the left and hatred for Sir Keith, as they so wittily call him, is ferocious. <laughs> what do the Labour left actually want and can they get it? So, Ian... It's almost a year since the election and the left is in is, is in quite a state. Does it make more sense to analyse this sort of through the lens of psychology rather than politics? Has this been a year of sort of PTSD for the Labour left? Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned this in conversation the other day and I haven't been able to get it out of my head because the more you look at the behaviour, the more it does seem to reflect a kind of a psychological and emotional process rather than a political process. I think it's 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 really it's really hard to be proven wrong, right? And when people are really, I wouldn't know, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely, like it's. 
I think you you have a couple of choices. Like you you can either you can either think, okay, well, what what happened? What went wrong? Like what do I change? Whatever the problem is, or you can sort of do this kind of archiving of your recent past and find these little bits of evidence from which you can construct a narrative that excuses you from everything. And, and that's basically what we've seen, right? It's like, you know, the Remainers and plus Liberals stabbing them in the back and the media were responsible for the election result. You know, you ignore the fact that lots of Remain voters were leaving Labour and voting elsewhere, just why they had to make the promise of the referendum. You then go to Starmer and this supposed purge of the left, which in fact is just actually delivering on what needed to be done given the state of anti-Semitism, what had to be done legally on the basis of the report. And you you just construct this thing where you were never wrong, right? And you can maintain your virtue. And that seems to me to not really be an intellectual or political process at all. It is fundamentally like a psychological, emotional process that they're going through. And I've noticed on Fun Chat Space Twitter that even if Corbynites agree that the 2019 manifesto is sort of implausibly long, and, and I think, you know, you'll find that some of the people involved in putting it together would now say that, they get furious if you start, suggest dropping any particular policies. But now they're not in power, they need to choose which policies to fight for. So if, if you were them, what would they be wise to, to prioritise? I mean, there was a policy in the 2019 referendum uh, uh, manifesto on a referendum on Brexit, which I was personally quite fond of, and I don't know if they feel like doing that again. <laughs> they may not. They may not be up for that one. Apparently, that one can go. Um, so, I mean, they they brought up a lot of nationalisation, some of which didn't make a lot of sense to me, and, and some of which did. And if you were to proceed sensibly and cautiously and say, well, which are private utility companies where there is no real competition, where it's completely artificial, the creation of competition, that would be quite a compelling proposal electorally, but also in terms of how you run the country. They had, um, I mean, I thought taking basic dentistry and hospital car parking charges out of it was really good, again, moral, popular. There was a policy, by the way, which just in terms of electoral support, sort of got lost, but which I thought was, again, right. And for a certain core group of voters could possibly provide a lot of motivation. It seems small, but it was, do you remember there was a default right um, for, for people in the rental market to have pets? So the landlords wouldn't be able to just say no dogs, no anything. And you sometimes see this even in leasehold. Like that, again, just seems like this completely unreasonable provision. People deserve to have more rights in this area. Over and over again, we see the pets are good. So there's plenty of good ideas there. Christina, what what policies would you like to see the Labour left fight to retain or, or to sort of concentrate on? Or to put it another way, you know, what, what sort of things would you like to see Starmer uh, prioritise? I think... Well, obviously, climate change. I think, you know, this pandemic has taught us that this government's not, well, any government isn't good at making decisions for things that haven't happened yet. But I mean, climate change is coming. And if we don't do something, we know we're totally screwed. So that has to be up on the agenda. But then something really bold around, you know, post pandemic, you know, the nature of work, the nature of towns, the social contract, you know, like this pandemic is really exposed, you know, the importance of key workers who maybe people didn't think of as key workers you know how do we tackle inequality how do we change the fact that we have these massive vulnerable populations that are there through deprivation and and poverty and all of that that's what I want I want something that that I can feel passionate about but that is believable and has passion and has competency 
I mean, maybe that's too much to ask. I hope it isn't. <laughs> but I mean, given the fact that, that obviously there are going to be a lot of challenges for the sort of the country post-pandemic, does this divide, does this, does this fight, which mainly seems to be about, not about policy, but about whether Corbyn's in or out, uh, does, that, does this sort of seem rather sort of self-indulgent uh, and not really kind of relevant to what's actually happening? Well, I think the COVID side is kind of divorced from this battle. Like, I don't see that it stops Labour asking questions about COVID at all. I feel, I feel like they haven't said anything about Brexit, and that seems like that's coming reasonably soon, and we should have some kind of idea about what Labour thinks should happen next. But really, if you're going to have this argument, you might as well have it now when everyone's distracted. I hear, I remember not so long ago when you say there's no such thing as Corbynism. It's just socialism. It's a movement, not a man. Um, but there's been a, yet another weekend of pro-Corbyn content, hashtags, fan art, petitions and so on i mean i mean has has the labor left become a bit of a personality cult i don't care dorian uh <laughs> i don't care about any of this and i refuse to pretend to I, I refuse to performatively have opinions about the labor party i know that lots of people enjoy getting in fights on the internet about the labor party it all seems extraordinarily tedious to me and i have no particular interest in it. <laughs> okay we'll see you next week <laughs> but do you th- all right do you think that the fact that we've all had a very online year um, makes divisions these divisions divisions generally sort of both more intense and more visible uh, and which is online too much yeah of course it does and we've seen this like it's you know it, to the extent that politics is sort of another branch of entertainment or another subculture for people to get involved in and everyone listening will know this about any sort of particular subculture that they're involved in uh to the extent that everything has been massively fucked by the pandemic we've all been rendered a bunch of bald men arguing over a comb uh and that's what uh that's 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 how everyone sort of behaves online because there's no other real outlet for anything it sort of makes sense it's just horrifically dispiriting uh, so, you know, I asked earlier, like, what, what the left wants, but does Starmer's team have a clear vision at the moment? Or is this just the sort of the year, this is a very strange year of, of no new ideas all around? Yeah, no, he doesn't. And I, I don't really blame him. Um, so I don't know why I said that like an American teenager, but whatever. <laughs> um, so he has a couple of runs. I mean, the first one is COVID. So, you know, it's just dominating everything. And there's no, it would be a bit point, you know, for him to come out in the middle of this stuff and go, oh, here's our policy agenda, you know, for transport. You just think like, what are you fucking talking about, mate? Like, no one cares right now. So it, that wouldn't necessarily be a good way to proceed. He also has the, the problem that all opposition leaders have all the time, which is if you start coming out with policies at this stage in the electoral cycle, the, the, the government will either use them to harm you or it will just nick them if they're good. And so there's really no incentive to do it or they'll be completely forgotten about and be old news by the time you get to the election cycle, even if it takes off well. So you'd be quite cautious at that. He made a bit of a, an approach, I think, during the Labour conference where he basically did a speech going, communicating exactly what you would expect. It's patriotism and it's competence. This is how we're going to proceed. And trying to base the arguments for a left-wing policy program on patriotic arguments of caring about where you live, of loving where you live and wanting to improve it. And like that's pretty watercolour stuff at the moment, okay? It, it's not an Excel spreadsheet, but it is the right kind of conversation to have. And given the stuff that's happening, given where we are in the cycle, it, 
I, it, you at least think he's thinking in the right way. And I imagine that those ideas are coming. But there's no getting away from the fact that right now, apart from not being Corbyn and not being Boris Johnson, there isn't much of a sort of you know positive agenda there. With lockdown two supposedly coming to an end next week, it's time to start the COVID inquiry and find out where Britain went wrong. Uh, caveat, this is not an official COVID inquiry. It's just a podcast. <laughs> um, late lockdowns, poor messaging and a failing test and trace system have left Britain with more coronavirus deaths than any other country in Europe. Well, with the choice of vaccines on the way, a route out seems plausible, but there's still plenty of bumps on the road ahead. So where do we go from here? And what have we learned from our initial virus response? Christina, you know what you're talking about. That's, that's a big bonus uh, around here. I mean, it's such a big question to ask, like, what, what lessons have we learned from the response? But just to, I suppose, to sort of take the, the, the most obvious uh, lessons, if we could do it all again, what, what are the obvious things that we would, that would do differently? I mean, I think what is really depressing about the whole thing is that I don't think the government has learned anything from it. I think we have. But what we do definitely, I mean, you, you try and be more like South Korea, New Zealand, Vietnam, you know, places that have had very few deaths and, and actually have kind of weathered the economic crisis pretty well as well. But it requires a completely different way of decision making. Most recently, the Swedish experiment adored by the anti-lockdown crew seems to have gone awry. But I mean, has it been useful, say, for people like you internationally to have a range of sort of real world strategies to assess is that you don't actually need counterfactuals because we've got you know sweden we've got brazil we've got taiwan we've got a real range of strategies and outcomes yeah i mean it's been it's been incredibly useful i think what's been so frustrating is that we haven't been using them like the government doesn't seem to have been looking at other countries about what to do but sweden it is interesting because it was a genuine question at the beginning you know what route do you go down and they picked a route that was less restrictive, but they did have restrictions. Pretending that they didn't have restrictions is, is just wrong. Um, and they did some quite bold things, like they banned all travel from outside the EU in, in April, and that ban is still there now. But it, yeah, it, it didn't work. And they're now back at you know much higher case rates than they even had a peak. They've got much higher death rates than their neighbours. But you know the, the pro-Sweden lobby have just fallen silent on it completely. And I'm thinking, well, you know, we could be Norway, I mean, they're doing pretty well. Finland's doing pretty well. Um, but they don't ever get talked about. Ian, Christina just said the government hasn't learned anything. In March, they instituted a lockdown three weeks late. And then in October, they instituted a lockdown three weeks late. Has anything got through? How can you go through this kind of, you know, once, hopefully once in a generation thing and, and, and really be none the wiser? No, it seems to be getting slower because actually watching Boris Johnson in the Commons on Monday afternoon, he basically said all the things that, well, Christina was saying uh, over a month ago about the tier system, but which at the time the government was saying, well, this would be perfectly fine. Now Boris Johnson's in the Commons going, well, actually, that, that old tier system didn't get the R below one. So we're going to change it in a way that basically makes the top tier lockdown and makes the only other real tier that's going to appear below it to be tier three. So, I mean, suddenly you're just like, okay, so you're doing the same thing. You know, weeks later, you're admitting that you're wrong, either in policy or by your words. But it's no longer three weeks. We now have to wait between four to five weeks before the government decides that it's wrong. There's been a lot of cronyism that's been in the news the last few days, with contracts awarded to best friends, spouses and former colleagues of Tory MPs. That's bad in itself. But has it also impeded the government's response to the virus, do you think? 
And almost certainly. And, and we see this, I mean, hats off, by the way, to Jolie Amon, um, who has done an awful lot of the legwork on this stuff and is finally getting some traction on it. Um, and yeah, again and again, we see the same process, which is this sort of commercial version of the echo chamber mentality, right? It's always, that we're, well, we're just better, you know, so we'll just keep on giving it to people that we know. And, and, and that taps in also is connected to that sort of the, the preference for high tech, snazzy, shiny options rather than the sort of traditional way you might approach these things. And, you know, when there is the postmortem of what took place, I think those decisions are going to come across looking very badly indeed. I hear there was an extraordinary Daily Express headline last week, Boris Johnson battles experts to save Christmas. Mm. Uh, why is the government uh, so obsessed with saving Christmas dinner, um, even if it might mean a longer lockdown in January or, God forbid, people catching COVID and dying? Is this the, is this the blitz spirit we were promised? Well, you know, uh, I think that um, there's, it's, it's not only the religious element of these festivals, it's the importance of uh, family coming together at these festivals. And it's good that the government have realized this after informing Muslims in the North 15 minutes before Eid that there would be a lockdown. And uh, while telling Hindus, Sikhs and Jains across the country that there would be a national lockdown uh, in the event of Dubai. And I think that uh, it's it's good to know, it's good to know that the government respects all religions, whether you're a party. <laughs> Uh, that's really, really lovely. Uh, but yes, look, it's it's just the government basically saying, like, look, if you're worried about killing your grandparents or what? Try not to think of it as killing your grandmother. Instead, think of it as the most radical act of housing redistribution in British history. <laughs> um, you're my focus group of one. Uh, do you think the promise of a vaccine now will will perhaps make people more reckless now? Think, oh, good, you know, help us on the way, or we'll know that there's light end of the tunnel encourage them to be sort of more careful over the final stretch i mean there's there's light at the end of a tunnel and there's counting your chickens right and i mean that given what we've all lived through over the course of the last eight months i am very committed to uh keeping as as safe as possible until i know that the government can't fuck something up it's why this uh oxford vaccine seems a lot like oh you, you can pop that one in the fridge as opposed to, is it the Pfizer one that you've got to get to like zero Kelvin or whatever? And you're like, right, okay, putting something in the fridge, that's really hard to fuck up. They'll probably still do it a bit, <laughs> like half will go off, but we've still got quite a lot. That'll be okay. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very um, wary given the uh, spectacular shows of competence that we've all been treated to over the course of the last year. Uh, to get overly excited until I've got Pfizer in one arm and Moderna in the other, <laughs> fucking doing a line of AstraZeneca. <laughs> Christine, when we're assessing where the government went went wrong, do you put most of it down to incompetence, particularly, uh, but not exclusively, in communications, or are some of them due to pursuing a strategy, perhaps in good faith? Uh, that turned out to be misguided. Like how much is how much is understandable and how much is just like, well, you fucked up? Oh, I think part of it is that a lot of them are kind of idiots. And <laughs> it's not it's not a very it's, it's not a very cabinet. And I think that shows. But I think part of it is this kind of ideology that they just have this blind belief in the private sector that somehow the private sector will fix things. And a disregard for the civil service, part of that might be Cummings and part of it, I think, 
is more general in government that they they don't respect the expertise that's there in public health and so they didn't use it and that has been a pretty disastrous decision I think uh part of it is just sheer incompetence like I just don't understand how you couldn't plan for A-level results I mean you remember that and GCSEs and how you Mm -hmm. can plan for schools going back and thinking people might want tests that kind of mistake just I just can't I just can't understand it I mean, it's just bond or obvious that that would happen. And then some of it, though, is genuinely that you, there isn't that much evidence. So some of the stuff is genuinely that we didn't know better. And like with masks, there was, we didn't know at the beginning and then we did know and then they did bring it in. So some of it is mm. that it is kind of an unprecedented crisis, but they try to pretend that it's all unprecedented and that, that isn't true. And finally, I, I, I here uh, made this point in the form of a joke because he's a comedian. He does that. But are you optimistic that the government will can rise to the challenge of distributing tens of millions of doses of vaccine in a few months? Like, is is there any room for error on this? Well, the good thing is that they are doing it through the NHS and through GPs. So I think that given that something like 99% of the UK population is registered with a GP, that they are local, that they do know their communities, that we can do that. And they already deliver the flu vaccine to millions of people every year. So there is a structure for doing it. I'm more worried about the messaging. I'm more worried that that they're going to be like, this is it. It's the way out. It's over. And then we'll end up with a third spike just as we get the vaccine. And that's just going to be tragic. I mean, I just can't even imagine. Can you imagine thousands of people dying because of messaging? Everyone has up their screen time to connect with other people in the year of COVID, but beyond Zoom quizzes and DJ sessions, a new Oxford study shows that video games like Animal Crossing have offered vital virtual social spaces. Kirk McKean, editor-in-chief of TheGamer.com, says we've always misunderstood gaming and gamers as an isolated activity. I'm Kurt McKean and I'm the editor-in-chief of TheGamer.com. So according to a recent Oxford University study on gaming, people found they were happier and had more feelings of autonomy and belonging when they were playing video games. I think a lot of the time in our real lives, we have no agency over the things that happen to us. And this pandemic obviously upended people's lives. The world's becoming more fascist as well. And in video games, you can fight back against your oppressors or make positive change that you probably can't do in real life. We can explore a planet, step into someone's shoes and empathise with someone who's completely different from ourselves. Games like Animal Crossing became this cultural behemoth because celebrities were playing it, politicians were campaigning in it, because it let people just get away from everything. I think the Oxford study challenges our preconceptions about gaming because games are often seen as childlike, like adults are only allowed to do spreadsheets or gardening or something. But why is watching a film or reading a book seem different? These are still stories that we escape into. The world falls away for a good story, no matter what the medium is. Like when I grew up, the streets were busier on the council estate. and I, There was a lot more trouble as well. And I think games contribute to the peace a little bit. My kid, he spends a lot of time in Fortnite. Obviously, he's not getting the physical exercise of playing football down the street, but he's socialising with his friends in a safe way during the pandemic. He has Minecraft worlds where him and his friends play together and they do these role-play sessions. It's the same as playing with toys, but the toys are digital and you can do more with them, but the imagination factor is still there. I don't think it's fair to blame it all on generational differences. It's obviously a factor... But there are plenty of older people who enjoy video games and there are younger people who don't care about them at all. I think some of it depends on whether you were brought up with them or not. And it also comes down to ignorance a little bit. Like some people aren't interested and they don't want to educate themselves either. I see fishing as a pointless hobby. 
And it's essentially the same as video games. You go somewhere beautiful, you sit down and you wait for something exciting to happen. Some people just don't care to see the parallels between video games and more traditional hobbies, but they are there. COVID's changed the social aspect of games in quite a big way, I'd say, because like I mentioned before with Animal Crossing, celebrities are playing it now. It's a way to visit your friend's house in a way. Digital sales are up massively as well, which is obviously shows that people are playing games more. Internet usage is the highest it's been. But even outside of those multiplayer games, I'd say single player games offer an escape. Like people can visit other countries when no planes can take you to another country at the moment. You can experience history. You can have a virtual vacation. And God knows we all need one of those. I hear, are you a gamer? And if so, are you a sociable gamer or or an angry loner? Um, (laughs) uh, I'm not a gamer. Uh, When I I was a child, I had a PlayStation 2, which I played for a while. I always liked the single-player stuff. I didn't really uh, go on with any of the other stuff. Uh, But eventually my dad decided that I didn't play it often enough, and so swapped it for some wine. Uh, And that's the sort of like a very strong energy from him. Uh, I've not been a a gamer since. I mean, the closest that I've got, uh, I I sometimes play this online game now where I see several friends or colleagues and also a version of myself that my eyes are inexorably drawn to as I reflect on every mistake I've ever made. Uh, That's one called Zoom, uh, which presumably we've all played quite a lot. The last few months, but uh, no, that it's a uh, it's, it's not one that not one that I've really got on board with. But your the the insert that we heard um, earlier actually did change my mind about it and made me think. Oh, maybe I should be doing this. It sounds quite good. <laughs> um, Christina, it's quite a, it's quite a limited study, and the, and and the guy that ran it was quite sort of uh, you know uh, modest about about you know what how much data they had. The two games of the study are all ages, not Zombie Commander Kill Zone or. Whatever, whatever those games are called. Um, I mean, does, does it does it very much depend on, on sort of what kind of games and how you play them? And to, to almost to sort of talk about games as if they're a mass is is sort of misleading because it's really about sort of different kinds. Well, I don't I don't know that it's so much about the type of game. I think the social interaction side is really important. Um, and there are loads of games that will let you interact with your friends or or strangers online, which. I mean, you can see, you can see how it works. I mean, the thing is with the study, it is, you know, it's quite cautious. It is basically correlation. They have quite low response rates. But you have to also think about, is it plausible? And it's perfectly plausible to me that in lockdown, having that outlet is a lifesaver and makes you happier. I mean, like for me, I'm not a big gamer, but, you know, I've been playing Zoom categories with family. That counts, doesn't it? I mean, things like that that you can do that just create connections and take you away from from life for a few hours. I mean, it seems like, I mean, of course that makes you happier. Ian, you wrote an article recently sort of pointing out video games have been demonised as antisocial and addictive since the days of Pac-Man, which is probably the last time I paid attention. Um, <laughs> is it, I mean, is, is this just one of those, is, is this just one of those enduring sort of suspicions of, of young people and youth culture and sort of gadgets and, and, and what kind of monstrous race of cyborg freaks are we creating? 
I think so. I think it is. And I, w- I went through these old Hansard sort of entries of what um, people were talking about in Parliament when, you know, Space Invaders and all that first came out. And there were th- the lunacy that you were, it was people going, they're hypnotized by them. They're going to turn to prostitution and gambling and theft in order to feed their Space Invaders addiction. <laughs> it's incredible that anyone think that way. And the reason they think that way is the same reason that we got you know, the coverage not that much later about the rave scene or about comics in the 50s. It's always and always that thing of just being scared of things that the youth are doing that you don't understand. And I think this study coming out now, it's just a very, very small first step. But what it signifies to me is that the people that grew up with games, that's the key part, really. Did you grow up with them? Do you understand the language of them? Is it something you've taken into your adulthood? The people that grew up with games are now in a position they're senior enough, they're old enough where they're starting research projects. And they're going into it with a very different mindset to the researchers that came before who are just constantly trying to prove, you know, video game addiction and the like. And actually have a much more balanced appraisal of how these things might operate and are bringing that into the research. So I suspect that this will be the start of, of quite a lot more fair research into the subject area that will keep on coming up with findings which people seem to find quite surprising at the moment. Finally, what about the men? Last week, Ben Bradley, Tory MP for Nuts Magazine North, opened the parliamentary <laughs> debate on International Men's Day, the most magical day of the year, by asking, why have a minister for women, but not one for men? Is this just anti-feminism in disguise, or is there something substantial to be plucked out of that idea? Our here, former Brexit MEP Martin Daubney is an actual former editor of Loaded, and Lawrence Fox has strong lads mag energy. Um, <laughs> Are we seeing the, the radicalization of that kind of bloke? Have, have they been radicalized? <laughs> I'd love to never hear anyone say that again. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. It, it, it always just strikes me as very odd. Like, whenever people make sort of anything their main thing, it's always... A, a bit like okay, let's let's get into why that's your main thing. And uh, with certain elements of identity, if you come from a relatively marginalised group, like it would make more sense why uh, race was more my thing in inverted commas than it might be for a white English person who may not necessarily have had to think about it quite so much. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a bit like why why would you choose making being a bloke your thing? I don't really <laughs> I don't really vibe with it. Uh, Maybe, maybe the yeah, maybe the minister thing could. Well, I mean, I know that there are sort of things like more more men, uh, like suicide being a very large uh, cause of death among young men in particular. So there's no reason to say that um, this couldn't have a positive impact. But equally, you you do get the suspicion that uh, it's not it's not quite the earnest proposal that uh, people would make it out to be. Well. Ian, Ben Bradley is, is, has a track record of being a bit of a troll, um, but he did make an effort to suggest a few policies, uh, action to prevent male suicide and treat alcohol addiction, reforms to child maintenance, uh, support for new fathers, support for left-behind boys in education, um, without endorsing uh, all of those necessarily. Is there something potentially positive uh, in the idea of a minister for men? Yeah, I mean, if you felt that people were coming at it from actual concern about people rather than 
you know, let's attack political correctness. There could be. And, and as, as you're saying, like, he makes that speech and dribbling it, there are these things, the suicide rates, for instance, educational achievement in certain areas, where you think, well, actually, it would be useful to actually start looking to see, is there something specific about the disadvantage here? But then the trouble, it's, it's like watching it is like fucking, it was like you could hear the Jaws music, you know? So he says the suicide rate stuff and you're like, okay, fine. And then it comes up with, he mentions reforming child maintenance service. So oh, you know, yeah. fairer to all parties. And you just hear like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> It's a bit violence for justice, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then, the, and he also mentioned, by the way, family courts to say that they that they treat dads guilty until proven innocent. You just think, no, mate, that is not what fucking happens. In fact, the research, when you look at cases on custody, there's about 40,000 of these cases a year. And like over and over, you find is the majority of them, by the way, on allegations of domestic abuse. And the, the, they're found in each case to promote as much contact as possible with fathers. In fact, sometimes to the point where there are strong arguments that that actually goes too far. But why? Because those courts are based on the idea that the child's welfare is paramount. So if you were to have a really sense, the thing is, if you were to really look at things like male suicide, you also do have to look at, and we should, and then you should also look at why is it that men are convicted of, of assault so much more than women? Is it just physical strength? Or is it possible that if we look into these issues, that we will find things that these men's rights guys don't like, like proper problems in the male personality that we can address and work through if we look at them, but not if we just come to the whole debate as it's fucking political correctness gone mad, it's all wokeism, and now we need to have the men back in control. Christina, to take one of those issues, male suicide is related to the kind of stereotypes of masculinity uh, that feminists uh, talk about. Do, do sort of anti-feminist men struggle with the idea that some of these problems that they are kind of rightly complaining about, you know, do stem from the same issues that feminists are talking about, and it's it's not actually a, a zero-sum game? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they do. There's this kind of toxic masculinity that seems on the rise everywhere, and I mean, one big advantage to try and tackle it is it might just make men, you know, a bit less rapey, and you know, there's kind of been all this emphasis on women and how how women should keep themselves safe and and less on how men can become safer to be around. And I think part of that is around kind of what what makes you a man. And, you know, I guess I'm not the best person to talk about it, not being one, but I feel like there's a big conversation to be had there. It feels like much harder to be a man now than it was 30 years ago and, and harder to be a woman too. And I don't know, I mean, just like in my field, like I work in maths and obviously there aren't that many women in it. And, you know, you have networks, you have networks of, of among the women of, you know, who's a bit handy, who would you not want to go out for a meal with on your own? You know, you kind of have these little protective things that I think men just don't understand that are there. And I imagine all women have that to some extent in their lives and, and you kind of get used to it. And then at some point you're like, well, why, why should I, why should I have to live my life in this way that I have to circumscribe my behavior constantly to stop being at risk of, of a man hurting me? you know, and hurting each other as well. You know, there's a lot of male-on-male violence. And, and yes, I mean, if there was a way of, of, of tackling that in government, whether it's a minister for men or minister for mental health, whatever, then, then go for it. Well, as, as luck would have it, International Men's Day was immediately followed by Women's Equal Pay Day, the day after which women are effectively working for free because of the, the gender pay gap. And one thing I noticed that was kind of that was quite nice about this International Men's Day, which is not a it's not a date in my calendar, 
it's not it's not one that I particularly look forward to or put up decorations. But I noticed a few people on Twitter were kind of putting forward ideas of sort of different ideas of manhood and actually inspiring men. And and this this sort of holiday, not holiday, um, but this <laughs> this day, which used to be sort of something that you'd kind of avoid because it only ever got mentioned by people complaining on International Women's Day. When's International Men's Day? This year, there seemed to be a kind of like, oh, well, why don't we actually take this on and maybe suggest sort of different positive ideas of, of manhood? And I wonder whether is that a... Is that a way forward that you could just sort of talk about that if you if, if you actually do talk about these issues and masculinity, but but in a sort of progressive way? So it's almost like patriotism, you know, that you sort of reclaim it rather than leaving it to the wrongs. Yeah, that's why I think people like Marcus Rashford could be so powerful, not just advocating for, for children, but but being an example of a type of man that anyone would be proud to be. And, you know, there are plenty of of positive role models like him. So, yeah, you know, why don't, you know, let's celebrate those type of men, the caring ones. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel briefly for their escape routes and politics, the books, films, TV or music that give them sweet respite. Uh, Ian, we'll start with you. What's your diversion of choice? Uh, I'm going to go back to the video games because it is virtual reality. We got um, Oculus Quest 2. Ahead of this lockdown, I've never used. I can. I don't. I, I will explain virtual reality to you some other time, Dorian. Um, I've never used virtual reality before, and I had no fucking idea what was about to hit me. It is just the most vigorously insane thing. It's. But I can't. Every time I put it down, I just think I can't comprehend how much fun I, I have just had while stood in my living room, dangling around like a twat. But no, it is so good. So and I, honestly, if you've ever been tempted, get that. Sh- now is the time to fucking use that stuff because you can't go anywhere else. And this shit, it will take you to the end of the fucking earth. It really is like properly extraordinary and I can't praise it enough. Christina, what about you? Well, we actually discovered about a week ago the series called Uploads which is really good. It's on Amazon Prime and it's like just, they've just done one series and it's about um, kind of near future, but you get, you, once you die, you get uploaded to a virtual reality and you can still interact with people on the on the ground. And it, it's just, it's really clever. It's really funny. It's very good. So there's that. And I also, the other day I discovered, rediscovered there's an app that lets you play Battleships, which I've not played since, <laughs> well, since I was a child and I've got completely obsessed with it. And I've also become really, really good at it. So that's been really nice. <laughs> Fantastic. Are um, here? What about you? I've got an instant pot, Dorian. I've got I've got an instant pot, and I am increasingly looking for ways in which to justify the increasingly seemingly needless purchase of an instant pot. Uh, it's uh, which is a sort of if for those who don't have it, is a sort of multi. You can do many many different cooking operations within the same uh, vessel. Once you're able to do that many cooking operations within the same vessel, you realize quite how few cooking operations you actually ever did. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to creating yogurt. Uh, I, I don't really eat yogurt, but I think uh, I should now eat yogurt. This sounds, this sounds amazing. I've got so two TV programs because we're watching something very serious and uh, we decided to turn it off. And we just watched uh, some old episodes of The Inbetweeners, which does see, it seems like a completely different era that it, there it's, there's something sort of so like they almost, 
that they never ask, like, is this okay? <laughs> but there's something so sort of sweet about it. It, but in a way that I imagine some of it would 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 be more questioned now. Um, but it's but it's sort of very good on maybe not toxic masculinity, but sort of just messy masculinity. Mm. And it's incredibly sympathetic to the the kind of crappy ways in which they behave. And I just find it, I, I forgot how kind of sweet and incredibly crude it was at the same time. <laughs> and then the other thing is this shit called Industry, which I swear was made was made in the 90s and it's just been sitting around on a shelf because it's it's just sort of tr- it's trash in a way that I didn't I didn't think they made anymore it's just kind of like it's like hot sexy young people working in the city and getting into kind of getting into scrapes and there's all this financial jargon and sex scenes and it's like it's sort of like I don't even know if it's good but I didn't know that they made. I didn't know they made shows like that anymore. I don't even know if it's good. The review of every dish that has come out of my Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I can't believe someone made it. <laughs> That's the end of this week's bunker. Thank you to our panel, Ian Dunt. Thank you very much. Ahir Shah. Thank you. And Christina Pagel. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon to see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a mention on the show and hear us on next Thanks and best wishes from me to Helen Taylor-Wilkinson, Will Branfield and Paul Hurst. It's a thanks from me to Lucy Drake, Jeff Park, Richard Simpson, and everyone working on every vaccine. Thanks from me to Sarah Turner, Chris Arrowsmith, Pat Jurai. Take care. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Ahir Shah. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Barchbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Oh,